0: Good morning. What a great morning it's been so far. We're going to continue with our, um, our series on Nehemiah um, by reading Nehemiah chapter 4. should be up on the screen there uh, for you to follow along and if you don't have a Bible on you there are some in the row um, which is our gift to you to uh, read along today as well. So let's read uh, Nehemiah 4, Opposition to the Rebuilding. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up it would would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders." So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble, we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came out and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes." When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. When, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workers by day. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water.
1: Thank you, Lockie. This week in the post, I received a letter from the bank. And when I opened up the letter, I found in there two new credit cards or debit cards. Kim and I have debit cards and that expired. And so we were due for new ones. So I opened up the envelope and there were the two cards. And on my card, it had a little sticker on it, and it said, you now must activate your card. Now, I remember back in the day when I first had a credit card, to activate your card, you needed to actually go into the bank. And you have to stand in the line, and you have to wait to be served, which could take a long time. And then you have to get to the front, and you have to prove who you are, and then eventually they would activate your card for you. Eventually, they shifted over to a phone service where you'd ring up, but it was the same thing. You'd have to be put on hold. You'd have to wait for someone to answer the phone. They'd eventually answer it. You have to prove you are who you're saying you are, and then it you know, after a period of time, they'd activate your card. And so I was a little bit apprehensive about activating my card. I thought, do I really have time? And then I read the letter. And it said, these days you can activate your card by following a few very simple steps. And so it said, ring the number on the card. And so I did that. Ring the bank number. And instead of a a person, it was you remember when people used to answer the phone? Um, (laughs) Instead of a person, it was an automated reply. And and I picked up and it said, um, if you want to activate your debit card, press one. So I press one. It said, now enter the numbers on the front of your card followed by the hash key. And so I did that. And then it says, press in your expiry date followed by the hash key. And so I did that. And then they said these magic words like an angel from heaven. It said, your card is now activated. And I thought, that's amazing. Life has changed. We've morphed and all of a sudden banks are helpful. And I thought in my head, that was a pleasant experience. And to think having bank And pleasant experience, marry in the same sentence is really a miracle. Uh, If you work for a bank today, I'm sorry. Uh, We forgive you and we love you. And uh, you've got a job to do, and that's great. But wouldn't it be easy? Wouldn't it be great if life was always that easy? A few buttons you could press, and everything was a okay. There are a lot of things in life that are easy. Um, Today, you can put your hands on your head, and that's for most of us pretty easy. Um, You can touch your toes, not so easy. Um, You can, you know, put your hands on your cheeks easy. Uh, you can put your finger on your nose. You can pick your nose. I I actually got something there. Um, all those things are easy to do. You can count St. Kilda's premierships on one hand. Easy, really easy. But there's things in life that aren't easy. And I think from my experience, one of the things I find in life that is not always easy is being a Christian. Being a Christian is not a guarantee of an easy life. There are times in life Um, that I've experienced, I'm sure you have as well, there are moments where you would think to yourself, it would be a lot easier in this moment not to be a Christian. When we're faced with moral decisions, and when we've got to stand for our convictions in hostile environments where the majority of people don't hold the same convictions that we have. When you need to stand for the truth. When you need to stand up in front of a scary bunch like you and give a testimony before a baptism. When you have to forgive someone who's done something very painful in your life, in all those occasions, it would be a lot easier at times not to be a follower of Christ. Now, I'm not advocating that you become not a follower of Christ. I think it's the greatest life you can ever live, and the blessings far outweigh the difficulties. But what I'm trying to get across is this, that being a Christian is not always easy. Life is hard, and in many ways, it can be even harder as we seek to follow Christ. Jesus made it really clear in his earthly ministry He said these words. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. It doesn't get any more plain than that. In this world, you will have trouble. Now I've found in life, a lot of the trouble often comes in our lives because we face opposition. And so today I want to talk about opposition. And you might think that's a really weird thing to talk about on a baptism day. I don't know if you remember the old Ken Bruce ads, but you might think I've gone mad the old ads on the radio, some of the more senior people are nodding their head. Uh, he used to say, Ken Bruce has gone mad. Ken Bruce has gone mad. Ken Bruce has gone completely mad. It was the worst advertising slogan ever because I can't remember who Ken Bruce is or what he did. And if I did know, I'd avoid him like anything because he's completely mad. And so it was a pathetic advertising campaign, but he's gone completely mad. And you might think I've gone completely mad Today, on a baptism service, talking about the opposition we face in life, but there is some method to the madness. And the first reason I think is relevant today is for the five people that have been through the waters of baptism, and for anyone here who calls themselves a Christian, there, there is a reality that every time we step out to do God's will, I have found that opposition increases. And so we as Christians need to have our eyes wide open that opposition in our life is a reality that we will all face. The second reason I think it's relevant is because we're currently in a series on the book of Nehemiah. It's week number three, chapter four, and in this chapter, the main theme of the chapter is that we see opposition coming against God's people. Now, my definition of opposition, uh, my best attempt at it is this, that opposition is anything that comes against us and causes us to be distracted from God's will for our lives. Now, you might have a better definition than that and you can use it when you preach, but today I'm preaching, and so we're going to use my definition, and my definition, once again, is that opposition is anything that comes against us and causes us to be distracted from God's will for our lives. Opposition comes in many different forms, but in the story of Nehemiah, it came in the form of people. If you're not familiar with the story, Nehemiah was a man who was given a vision by God to see Jerusalem, his hometown, his His posse, his neighborhood, the city he loved, his vision was to see Jerusalem rebuilt so that it became a dwelling place for God's name. In other words, his vision was to see his city come alive to the things of God, to flourish in every part of life. So people outside of the city would look to that city and they would see the power and the goodness and the mercy of God towards his people and it'd be so radically different that they'd be attracted to it. What an amazing vision that is. It's kind of like the vision we have for this region, Officer and Pakenham. And we want to see Jesus lifted high. We want to see people come to know him. We want to see people worshipping and honouring Christ as Lord. That's the vision we have as a church. And so for Nehemiah, it was a wonderful, wonderful vision. There was one small problem, though, and that was that the city was in complete ruins, uh, not just physically, but also spiritually. Physically, the city had been destroyed many years earlier by their enemies. And even though a rebuild had started, it was far from finished and it was still a bit of a mess, a work in progress. But spiritually, if you could see the spiritual state of people, it was even worse than the physical state. They had returned to their land, but they had not returned to God and they were far, far from God. And so a key part of Nehemiah's role and his calling and the vision God gave him is to return to the city to help the people turn back to God, but also he had a job, a building job. And the building job was to rebuild the wall right around the city so that this city that started to flourish would be safe from enemy attack. And so the book of Nehemiah is 13 chapters in length. But as we read through it, we'll see that about a third of those chapters is directly given to this issue of opposition. And if God puts so much about opposition in a book like this, uh, it would indicate that there's something about it that he wants us to learn. And so the first thing I think we need to learn today about opposition is this, that opposition in our lives is inevitable. Whenever God gives you a vision for life that is Jesus-centered, faith-filled, spirit-led, there will always be opposition. I'm convinced that when you are striving to live out God's will in your life, that there will always be someone or a group of people that are upset with you. There will always be obstacles that come in the way that will try and stop us from living at the vision God has given us. Sometimes that opposition will come from places and people that we expect, but sometimes it comes from places and people that we'd never imagine. And so as Christians, we should expect and always be prepared for opposition. Like If we really believe what we say we believe, that God is the all-powerful God that we worship, that we're in relationship with, but at the same time, we have a real enemy. Then we need to understand that when we put our faith in Christ and come into relationship with him, we're stepping onto the battlefield. We're entering a spiritual battle. Is anyone with me this morning? Is it just me that feels this way sometimes? We're stepping in a battle and we're in a fight. And if you're in Christ, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And the Bible says the devil is the prince of darkness and he is the ruler of this dark world. And so when we put our faith in Christ, we stand face to face with the devil as the light of the world, and we come, and our role is to bring light into the darkness. Now, it would be fair to say that the devil does his best work in the dark. In fact, he can only work in the dark. And so he's not happy about us being the light of the world. And so our calling is to be the light of the world, to be people who step out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be people who bless our communities. To be people who love and serve and sacrifice for one another. To be people who are so transformed by the Holy Spirit that the fruits of the Spirit flow from our lives on a regular basis. And that as that happens, we bring light and we push back the darkness. We step into the realm of the devil and we take territory for God here on planet Earth. That's an exciting calling. To be people who are the light of the world. Well, this is what I loved about Judy's testimony today, that a few months ago, we, you know, we started a ministry at the local park, feeding people and sitting around with people who are lonely or isolated or, or, or poor or struggling in some way. And Judy's story is a story of something that happened in a dark, dingy park in Pakenham, a notorious park. And just as we sat around tables and ate and chatted, God did something that Judy has described this morning as powerful in her life. Now, this week I had coffee with Judy and um, she told me that in many ways her circumstances haven't changed at all. But she said at the same time, absolutely everything is different. That is the power of God working in our lives, that he gives us a peace that passes all understanding. He gives us a joy that makes no sense to have. He tells us that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us that he will give us the Holy Spirit, his comforter, his counselor, no matter what we go through in life. And for us, we get excited about situations like that, don't we? We rejoice, three of us, me and Wayne rejoice over what's happening in Judy's life. It's incredibly exciting to see that. And when we planted a church, God, yes, three people, that's awesome. When God gave us a vision to plant a church, we dreamed and we prayed about people like Judy. And right in front of our eyes is an answer to prayer. That God has done something in her heart through the gospel. She is being transformed and she's coming to know him in greater ways. That is incredibly exciting. But let me tell you, there's someone who hates Judy's story. It's the devil. He hates Judy's story. The Bible says he's prowling around like a roaring lion looking to devour and he is plotting and scheming against God's people. That's what the book of Ephesians says. We need to put on the full armor of God every day so that we can stand against God his schemes. When the kingdom of God advances, opposition increases. And that's the reality of the battle that we find ourselves in. Nehemiah was the same. He was a man on a mission. He was a man with a vision. God had given him this vision and he was determined to see it through so that God's city would once again be a place where he was glorified. It was a vision that Nehemiah was willing to give his life to. And he soon discovered that there was a real enemy that wasn't happy about it. And he would do anything He can, to try and stop us living out the vision God has placed in our hearts. He'll use criticism. He'll use doubt and fear. He'll use disappointment. He'll use our past failures. And he'll definitely use people. The challenge for us in those moments of opposition is to always remember and realize that we don't fight against people, but we fight against the devil himself. The Apostle Paul says that we fight against, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. And so there's a couple of things from this story and from life itself that I have seen. And that is this, that opposition comes from a couple of places. It comes from outside and it also comes from inside, but the source is always the same. It's the devil. And so opposition, first of all, comes from outside and how we respond to it is critical. And so outside of the church, outside of the people of God, there will be people who always oppose the vision of God. In this story, it was two men called Sanballat and Tobiah. I looked them up in the original Hebrew and it just means dumb and dumber. Um, They were dumb and dumber because they were opposing Nehemiah, but bigger than that, they were opposing God himself, his vision for the city. And let me tell you, church, if you're going to oppose someone, God's not a good person to start with. And so we meet Dumb and Dumber, first of all, in chapter 2. And it says that they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And in chapter 4, we're once again introduced to them in verse 1. It says, When Sam Ballot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they really restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was kind of like the sidekick of Sanballat, who was at his side, said what they are building, even a fox climbing up on that, would knock it over. It's pathetic. You see, the people were opposing the vision God had given Nehemiah, opposing God's vision for the city. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems to me that there's a growing opposition to Christianity in our culture. There is a, a constant walking away from a biblical worldview in our world. Sometimes it comes from government in other parts of the world. Other times it's from local authorities, other groups. Many people out there, they don't want churches to flourish. They would hate the fact that our church is growing. They don't want Jesus to be known. They want religion out of schools. They want prayer out of parliament. They want basically all Christians to be silenced. Of course, overseas, it's much worse than that. Many men and women and children being slaughtered by dominating leadership simply for no crime, but for the fact that they've put their faith in Jesus. And so it's true that we'll always face opposition from outside of God's people, and it's kind of to be expected. Jesus himself said in John 15, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And so even though opposition from outside is expected, opposition can also be so discouraging. And how we respond to it is incredibly important. I can only imagine how Nehemiah is feeling in this story. It's always good to try and put yourself in the narrative. He has this vision from God. He's all these green lights to move forward. The people have jumped on board the vision, and yet there's these few people outside of God's people that just don't seem to get it. In verse three, they're criticizing, they're manipulating, they're plotting, they're ridiculing, they're belittling what God is asking these people to do. Basically, to summarise, they're saying Nehemiah, you're useless, you're hopeless, you're insignificant you'll never succeed. A fox would knock over that pitiful wall. What a joke you are. And in verse four, Nehemiah prays. And I must admit, when I read his prayer this week, I pondered over it and then I started chuckling because I realized that sometimes it's a prayer that we all feel like praying. And let me read it to you. He says, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now I chuckled because sometimes that's the kind of prayer I feel like praying. When opposition rises up, to summarize his prayer, he's basically saying, God, smite them, sort them out, don't show them any forgiveness, teach them a lesson, show them who's boss, and God, as you do it, I'll watch and I'll enjoy it. In fact, here I am, send me. If you want to use me as your weapon, I'll get out there and I'll do it. And and don't look at me like that. I'm not preaching to a room of angels today. You've all felt like it. We've all been there. When opposition arises, our default position is not to love people, but to get angry and to look for revenge. But I wonder if Nehemiah's prayer is how God wants us to pray. I don't think it is, but it shows that Nehemiah is human like us, and so I'm really glad it's there. It makes me feel better about myself. But Jesus tells us a better way, doesn't he? He says, love your enemies. He says, pray for those who persecute you. I wonder if that's the way that you respond in your life. When opposition arises, do you love your enemies? Do you pray for those who persecute you? Maybe today you're thinking, look, that's ridiculous. That is nonsensical. And that just makes no sense at all. It's impossible. We can't do that. I've got another word for it. It's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It makes no sense that Jesus God in human form would leave the glory of heaven and on a Roman cross die in your place and die in my place for the sins we've committed. That makes no sense at all. And yet Jesus stretched out his hands and he says, in me is salvation. In me is forgiveness. In me, you can be set free. In me, you can have a hope and a future. That makes no sense, but it's what the Bible calls grace. And grace is simply undeserved love. And when God pours that into our hearts, I've said this before, but it's not for us to hold for ourselves. It's for us to give to one another. And you go, we well, don't know what people have done in my life. That's what grace is. It's undeserved love. When people don't deserve it, we give it anyway. We forgive, we love, we serve, even when people oppose us. And yet churches are full of people that refuse to forgive, refuse to let go of the grudges. They avoid people They talk about people. They won't confront issues. And it's so sad because I think God doesn't want us just to receive the gospel and know it here. He wants us to live it out even when it's hard and he's given us the Holy Spirit to do it. And so we need to be people who forgive. And as we do, we will show the world that we're radically different, that we're radically attractive. People outside of the church may hold grudges. Jesus says, you're redeemed. You're a new creation. And I'm calling you as I have forgiven you to forgive one another. So Nehemiah doesn't start that well with his prayer, but I don't want to give him a hard time because I think many times Nehemiah is a great leader. And we'll see in his next couple of responses that his response to opposition is a great example for us. You know, Opposition is a great tester of our hearts, isn't it? It often reveals what's going on and how close we are with Jesus. The way we respond in opposition will be a reflection of where we're at with him. If we respond with a lack of forgiveness... Hate, revenge. If we blow our top, if we post nasty comments on social media, I heard someone say recently that Bible verse that um, from the overflow of our hearts the mouth speaks. The modern version is from the overflow of our hearts the thumb tweets. And so often, don't we? We treat things on there, whether they're direct or or sly comments to try and hurt people. And God says, no, no, you're not called to do that. Your response is to be different. You're to respond with grace and love and prayer for those people. And it demonstrates that we're following Jesus' example, taking up our cross, denying ourselves and following him. And so one thing I think is really important to notice is that in other ways, Nia responds really well to opposition. As I said before, verse three, there's ridicule and there's scoffing and there's belittling. And then we get to verse six and it said, so we rebuilt the wall. Love that. In the face of opposition, people are trying to stop what they're doing. So we rebuilt the wall. God had given them a vision. And they didn't allow opposition to discourage them. And so it says, So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all of their hearts. Nehemiah didn't allow opposition to stop their progress, and he didn't allow the discouragement to thwart his passion. And the people didn't either. They didn't just work with their hands. It says they worked with all of their hearts. But who knows the devil's persistent? Once again, Wayne knows. I know. I'm preaching to you, brother. We know the devil's persistent. He doesn't give up easily. He, he just wants to wear us down. He wants to keep putting things in our life that will cause us to lose sight of what call, God is calling us to do. And that's exactly what happens in this story in verse 7. It says, When Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod, you'll notice the opposition is increasing. They heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed. They were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Verse nine, but we prayed to our God. Isn't it awesome? First of all, opposition, we built the wall. Second of all, opposition, we prayed to our God. And then it says, we prayed to God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. I love this, that Nehemiah is a man of prayer, but he's also a man of action. You know, I've met people on both ends of the spectrum in the Christian world and some people up this end are the super spiritual people. And they'll say, all you need to do is pray, brother. You got cancer, you don't need chemotherapy, brother. Just have faith and pray. That's all you need to do. Don't you dare have that Panadol. You pray. All right, and up the other end of the spectrum is people that never pray. They just do. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to make it happen in my own strength. I'm going to do it. It's all about me. And we're going we're to take the world for Jesus, but we don't need God's help and we won't pray and we won't seek his will. Well, Nehemiah models someone in the middle, a more balanced approach. He's a man of prayer, but he's a man who's also a man of action. It says that we prayed, but then it also says that we put people at the wall. It's really important that we're people of prayer and action. So we prayed to God and we posted a guard day and night. And from that day on, half of the men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers post themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall those who carried materials did their work with one hand and they held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. I want you to try and picture this for a moment. Imagine in a couple of years, we're building a building in Tivendale Road. And not only is the local council opposed it, not only have the neighbours protested, but there are people who have said, if you build the wall, we'll kill you. I said this to the elders the other night. I said, um, I won't say who it was, um, but his name, you know, rhymed with Bay Ranger. Um, And and I was saying to Bay Ranger that uh, imagine if the elders were there uh, with a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. And he said, "I wouldn't have a sword, mate. I'd have the shotgun." Uh, there's our elders leading by example. What a great example for us all to follow. But can you just imagine, make my day? Go ahead, make my day with the shotgun pointed at people. But here in this story, they have the bows and the arrows, and they're waiting for the enemy to come. And behind them, there's some people working, but they're carrying stuff in one hand. They've got a sword in another, but they're moving forward with the vision despite the opposition. And it's a great example for us. We see prayer and strategy, faith and action. And so the question is, what's our response when opposition comes from the outside? I hope that we will also be people of prayer and action. So opposition comes often from the outside, but it also comes from the inside. And I've noticed in church life that the devil often uses well-meaning, good-intentioned people to hinder God's will being done and to stop his vision coming to pass. In verse 10 of the passage, It says, Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. In other words, it's impossible. It's too hard. We can't do it. We tried this before. It won't work. Nehemiah is just unrealistic. He's putting pressure on people. I don't know what he was thinking. There are too many obstacles for us to finish this wall. I want you to bear in mind at this time of the story, there's already been at least five significant miracles. First of all, the king of Persia has allowed the people to, to come back from where they were scattered right throughout the world and to return to their homeland. That's miracle number one. Miracle number two, they'd been given permission to rebuild their city and temple. That's a miracle. Miracle number three, God, through Nehemiah and the king, had, had provided all their needs, everything they needed to build the wall, to build the gates. Everything had been provided by God. Miracle number four, the people had responded to Nehemiah's God-given vision and were working with all their hearts. Now, if you've been in church life for more than two minutes, any a congregation are all on board with a vision and they're working with all of their hearts, let me tell you, that's a miracle. Amen. Miracle number four. Miracle number five, despite strong opposition, the wall was already half built. And so they have this incredible vision for the future that they're walking towards They want to see the city come alive to God. They've already seen God move in incredible ways up until this point over and over again, but now there's some rubble. It's kind of pathetic, isn't it? God's done all this. God has done the miraculous, but now there's some rubble. And they say, we can't finish the wall. What we see here is God's people putting the brakes on God's vision that had been given to Nehemiah simply because of lack of faith. And it's a great challenge for us as a church. I mean, I never want us to take for granted what God's doing here. God is doing miracles in our midst. He has brought a group of people together that are excited about Jesus being lifted over this region. Excited about seeing people saved. We've seen people saved. We've seen people baptized. Uh, we've had three acres of land donated to our church for a future home. God is doing the miraculous over and over again. And people are excited about it. We have favor with the local council. We have opportunities in our local community to be a blessing. And God is opening up doors all over the place. And it feels like we're in a summer season where God's favor is on us. But let me just preempt something today. It won't always be like that. There will be seasons that are difficult. There will be seasons that are not so smooth. And so the question is, how will we respond in those times? Will we be people who respond with fear or will we be people who respond with faith? This week I was thinking about all the people that make up a church community and all the different personalities that people have. And as I thought about it, I thought that people usually have one of three default positions. You'll either be an accelerator, you'll be a clutch, or you'll be a brake. Now hands up if you've had to l- help someone learn to drive a car <laughs> and you have survived the experience. Well <laughs> done. That's a great effort. Because it's a pretty scary experience. And if you've taught a learner how to drive, you'll be acutely aware that the accelerator The brake and the clutch are all important, but when used in the wrong proportion, they're actually quite dangerous. And a standard learner lesson will include uh, whiplash from frequent unnecessary and sudden braking, motion sickness from frequent bunny hopping. My mum still does that. I'm in big trouble now. And even a heart attack. as you see your life flash before you multiple times in one single drive? It's a scary experience. And what becomes evident is that the brake, accelerator, and clutch are all important to move forward. But if they're not used in the right proportion, they're dangerous. And so people tend to be a brake, an accelerator, or a clutch. Now, the accelerators are like visionaries. They are the full steam ahead people. Can we do it? Yes, we can. Bob the Builder, he's an accelerator. He just wants to see stuff done. He wants to move forward with the vision of God. and It's great to have people with vision. People of action, I tend to be, you know, have a bias towards that. I tend to be more of an accelerator. But if you only ever have an accelerator, you're eventually going to hit a wall pretty hard and you're going to kill everyone in the vehicle. And so only an accelerator all the time is not a good thing. But there are other people that are the brakes. They're the cautious, conservative people. They want to be careful and sensible and logical and measured. They want to make sure that things don't move too fast. I was talking to Rob Shrew as our treasurer this week. And uh, we sort of um, compliment one another because I'm an accelerator. I say, we can do it. And he'll say, but I've got the budget. And we can't do it. And I'll say, but God is faithful. And he'll say, yes, but we've got to be sensible. And, and when you put Rob and I together, it's actually a really good thing. Because sometimes you need an accelerator and sometimes you need a break. They're both important. Now, I'm not always an accelerator and Rob's not always a break. I just want to make that clear. Sometimes Rob's an accelerator and I'm a brake. Um, but both are important. Then you've got the clutches. They are the people who are the strategy people. They're so important. The clutch helps you to change gears, to slow down when necessary. They think through stuff. They'll write down a three-minute vision, a two-week vision, a six-month vision, a five-year vision, a 20-year vision. And It's important to have strategy, but they will strategize until the cows come home if they're left to do that. And If you only ever strategize, if you only ever use the clutch, then you'll eventually you'll just stop. You'll stall. Most of us find ourselves defaulting to one of those positions. And that's a good thing because when we walk together in community and we use those things in the right proportion, it helps us to move forward safely. And so the question I've got for you is this, what is your default position? Are you a brake, an accelerator, or a clutch? And whatever you are, I want you to challenge yourself with God's help to step outside your default response. Because rather than just defaulting to what we're comfortable with, we should always be people who first pray. And ask God, what is your will in this situation? Because if we only ever default to our comfort zone, whether it's an accelerator, brake or clutch, we may actually be hindering what God is wanting to do in and through our lives and in and through his church. At this stage of the story, the people were becoming the brakes. They'd forgotten the miracles of the past. They'd lost sight of the vision for the future and they were consumed by the issues of the present. They weren't seeing the wall of the city. they were simply seeing the rubble. They'd been worn down by the constant opposition. And in those times it's leadership that is required. And Nehemiah is a great example for us, because he leads, not by faith, but, not by fear, but he leads by faith. He sees the promises, not the problem. He sees that God is behind the vision. He says, "God will fight for us." And so to finish up today, Nehemiah's message to the people and God's message to us, I believe, is this, that despite this opposition we face in life, whatever it may be, God is bigger. And we need to be people who lift our eyes. Verse 14, after I looked these things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. You'll remember in chapter one, his first prayer, he says that God is great and awesome. He goes back to that, he says, so fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And in verse 20, he says, our God will fight for us. No matter what we face in life, God is bigger than the circumstances. He will help us through what we are going through. When the opposition raged and when the people were worn down, Nehemiah kept his eyes on God. He remembered what God had done. He reminded the people of what he promised in the future. And his attitude was, if God is for us, who can be against us? What a great attitude of faith for us to have. So the people magnify the problem and they minimise God. Nehemiah minimised the problem and he maximised God, magnified God. So what's the application for us this morning in closing? Well, personally, the application is that whatever you're going through right now, whatever opposition you may face, maybe people are giving you a hard time, maybe you're struggling with your health, maybe there's obstacles that are stopping you from distracting you from living out the vision, maybe opposition's wearing you down. Well, I would pray that you would be people in opposition who would love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I pray that you would be people who would keep building. You would keep moving forward despite the opposition that comes our way. For us as a church, what's the application? Well, God's given us a vision. The vision is Jesus. The mission is to follow Jesus in our community for his glory. The devil doesn't like that mission. It's not going to be easy, but it's a vision God's given us. So I pray that we would be a group of people who are people of prayer and action, that we would lift our eyes and remember the Lord is great and awesome. Jesus says, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Opposition is inevitable. The way we handle it is critical. Opposition will come outside. It will come from inside. But God is bigger than whatever we face. And so I want to encourage you today to put your faith in him.